after an introduction like that, it's very unlikely that I'll live up to it. Uh, Femi is incredibly kind. It has been a privilege to call Femi a friend. We, uh, we Skype regularly. We share honestly. And uh, I would not want to be engaged in ministry without my friendship with Femi. So it's a privilege uh, to finally get to be with you in your context and get to spend some time here. Um, you know, I actually preached for the first time in my life on the continent of Africa. I was 17 years old. I don't know if I've shared this story with you. I was convinced that I was not a preacher, never would be, even though I was thinking I might be called to ministry. And so I was never going to be a preacher because when I sit up in front of people, my tongue swelled thick. I got really nervous. I sweated a lot, and I couldn't string together sentences, which is a pretty good sign you're not a preacher. <laughs> and uh, I was in Africa traveling at the age of 17 with some missionaries, and we traveled into a city, and one of the missionaries said, well, he was introducing us to the group of people, and he said, well, tonight Jeremiah is going to be bringing the message. And I looked at him and thought, that's news to me. I wish you had told me that previously. I should have told you about the tongue and the sweat and the, the sentences that don't fit. And, uh, and that night, I, I preached for the first time. And I preached a very poor sermon. Poorly constructed, very little preparation. I was as sweaty as I had ever been. You know, the whole thing. It was not good preaching. But I did talk about Jesus. I preached Jesus that night, and something happened in this room. Like the Spirit of God fell in power, and all of a sudden I was looking around going, oh, it was never about me, was it? And that night I realized that the, the gospel really is dynamite power of God. Like the gospel, when proclaimed, allows eternity to break in here and now. And we have the great privilege and opportunity to have the, the gospel roll off of our lips and eternity breaks in. This is a tremendous privilege and an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And it, for me, is this great joy that all these years later to now be back in Africa getting to to share some of what I've learned through the years. I still don't proclaim to be a great preacher, but I am as convinced as ever that the gospel has power, the power of God to save. And so to commend to you some of the ways that I see that at work and some of the ways I see that in the text, I'm very excited to do it. Uh, Paul describes this ministry. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 4, but it's interesting. At the start of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we have this ministry. Therefore, having this ministry. And when he's describing this ministry, what he's saying in context is it's this ministry that's greater even than what Moses had coming off of the mountain from having been with God. In all of chapter 3, he's been saying Moses used to get to spend time in the presence of God in such a way that he glowed with the glory of God. And he says, but we have something greater. We have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and now we've been entrusted with that message. It's greater even than what Moses had coming off the mountain. And so as we, as we enter into this space in 2 Corinthians 4, we enter with a certain amount of trembling and awe and joy and gratitude that we get to participate in this. And the reason we're going to run to 2 Corinthians 4 is I think the context and Paul's commentary are really helpful for us here today. You know, something was going on in Corinth. Paul had been there and planted a church, but while away, his name had been demeaned and his ministry undercut by something called super apostles. In Corinth, there were people that were, that were somewhat bombastic, full of themselves, 
they were flashy and spectacular. And they proclaimed to have a, an authority greater than Paul or, or those who had had this apostolic authority. They were super apostles. And there was a culture in Corinth that the flashier, the more exciting, the more magnetic, the better. That that's where the action is. And as Paul is speaking back into this church that he actually planted, as he's, as he's coaching them in the midst of this context, he's going to speak in 2 Corinthians 4 about what gospel ministry actually looks like. And he's going to speak into a context where people are feeling the tug and the pull towards the fantastic, towards the over the top, towards the thing that draws the crowd the fastest. And Paul is going to speak into that context. and He's going to speak about, well, what is gospel preaching really? And that's what we're going to focus on today, the first six verses. And the second half of the chapter, is he's going to talk about, and how is that gospel ministry carried in our lives? And tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to, I'm going to complete 2 Corinthians 4 as we think about gospel-centered leadership. So we're going to think today about gospel-centered preaching and tomorrow gospel-centered leadership, but particularly in a culture where we feel the draw of those around us, that if we're not fantastic, if we are not magnetic, if it doesn't draw a crowd quickly, then maybe we're doing something wrong. And into that space, Paul is going to offer a biblical corrective that reminds us of the glory of the gospel. And he's going to invite us to, if we do anything, proclaim the gospel and the gospel alone. So it's with that being said that I'd like to direct our attention to 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 for us. But just before I do, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. Isaiah says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. That means that as we come to this text, in a world where everything is moving towards chaos and death and we can feel it in our very bones, that when we come to this text, we're in touch with something eternal and life-giving and powerful. We would be really wise to pay attention. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, this ministry that's greater even than Moses coming off the mountain from the glory of God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word but by the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, what we have in this text is a few things. The first thing that we're going to have is the identity of the gospel preacher. Before we get to the message itself, Paul is so concerned about making sure that it's clear about how do we approach the, the very act of proclaiming the gospel. And that approach is part of what it looks like to have a gospel that is shaped, pardon me, a message that's shaped by the gospel. So we're going to talk about the identity of the preacher. And then secondly, we'll talk about the content 
of the message preached. And finally, we'll talk about the power that helps us to do that. So let's look at this. The identity of the gospel preacher that Paul is painting for this community in Corinth. He's going to say a few things about the identity of the preacher. The first thing is this. He's going to point towards the humility required if we are going to be gospel preachers. Do you see it in verse 1? He says, therefore, having this ministry, which if we had been reading in context, we would stop and our jaws would drop because what we're seeing is, okay, the very glory of God residing on the mountaintop. I've got something greater than that. And all of a sudden we're going, oh, wow. And then he says, we have that by the mercy of God. It is a gift. It's a gift. And you didn't earn it because that's how gifts work. It's the mercy of God that we would proclaim the gospel. Paul, at this point, could have very well, uh, he could have very easily convinced himself for the reasons that God showed up to him on the Damascus Road. And quite frankly, in my pride, I probably by this point would have convinced myself if I were Paul. That at first it was, well, yeah, God showed up in a blinding light on the way to Damascus. But the truth is, I'm one of the greatest theologians on the planet. I've got a strong background God kind of needs me for this movement. He needs someone with a theological mind to provide some clarity and some foundation for this gospel movement. And so, of course, of course he would show up and blind me with a light on the road to Damascus. Paul could have very easily convinced himself of that. He's got a strong resume. But all these years later, looking in his rearview mirror at churches planted all over with strong gospel ministry for years and years and years. When he says, I have this ministry, he says, and by the way, it's by the mercy of God. I have not earned it. It is not my resume. It is not my strength. It is not my intellect. It is not my charisma. It is not my strategy. It's mercy. We are not prepared to preach gospel unless we know that we stand only by the mercy of God with the scriptures opened. It is a dangerous place to stand with chest puffed out, going, you hold on, you don't know what's about to happen right here. When we start to think we're pretty special, and of course I would be the one that would get to handle God's holy word, beware. We are not on the path towards gospel preaching. We're on the path to something that is going to be destructive, and it's going to start with us. You see, you cannot prove yourself, it has been said, to be clever and God to be glorious simultaneously. You will always pick one or the other. This is why Paul, when he showed up in Corinth, he's already said this is the case. He said, when I showed up in Corinth, I made a decision. Do you remember this in 1 Corinthians? What was his decision? I made a decision that I left eloquence behind. I left all of my training and my fine words behind. Paul had it. It's not that he was an ineloquent man. It's not that he didn't have excellent training. He said, I decided that I was going to show up with fear and trembling. I was going to show up into a community where everyone was polished and prepared. And I could imagine them when they saw Paul show up the first time and going, really? This guy? This little guy that walks with a limp, bruises all over his body, scars from all the beatings he's received. He comes limping into town, nervous trembling, no eloquence. They're thinking, well, Paul, you've got great training. Maybe you need to lay hold of some of that eloquence. And he goes, no, I made a decision. I made a decision that I'm going to leave that behind. I didn't pack that with me. I made a decision that I was going to come in humility and lowliness. Andrew Murray has made the argument that if there's one question to be asked, one question to be asked that determines, am I growing as a Christian? 
if you had to eliminate all the questions, we could come up with a lot of questions to be able to say, okay, here's a survey. Am I growing as a Christian? But Andrew Murray made an argument. If you only had one, this would be it. Am I growing in humility? Because your Lord and your Savior made a practice of going low. And we say that we're following him. If we show up to preach the gospel, but we do so in a way that is full of pomp and circumstance and pride and saying, get a hold, get a load of this. Then we are already off course and we are not headed towards what it means to be a gospel preacher, to have gospel centered preaching. It starts with the preparation of the preacher as he steps into the pulpit. There's a great story told about a a young preacher in Scotland who was invited to preach at a very prominent church. The pastor was very famous, and he got invited, even though he was young and relatively untrained. He was so excited and so proud of the fact that he was going to get to stand in this historic pulpit, that he was sitting on the front row, and his leg was bouncing, and he was excited. And he was going, I'm about to shut this place down. You know, I'm going to burn it down. And the story goes that he leapt up, and he bounded up into the pulpit, and he stood, and he started to preach. And as, as he was preaching, it was like his words were falling off the end of a pulpit and landing with a thud right down here. You ever been there? I certainly have. Where you're going, I don't know what happened. This sounded a lot better in my bathroom when I was looking into the mirror, you know. And you're like, oh, that didn't do a thing. And slowly as he continued to preach, his shoulders started to stoop. And he started to realize, oh, no, what have I done? And he finished. He said, amen. And he walked down like this. And as the story goes, two men that had been in the church for years were standing in the back, and one elbowed the other, and he said, in his, in his thick accent, which I'll try to emulate poorly, had he gone up the way he came down, he would have come down the way he went up. The first mark of a gospel preacher is humility. This is a gift. It's by the mercy of God. The second thing is that we are hopeful we are hopeful. The very next note is this. We do not lose heart. There's part of me that when I read, well, it's only by the mercy of God that I'm doing this. We may start playing this. Well, you know, I really don't have anything to offer. I don't know if anything good's going to happen when I preach. Like, because we're saying, well, I need to be humble. And so humility would say, ah, it's not, you know, I, I don't have much to offer. I don't know. But the truth is you have a ministry greater than Moses. So we recognize our lowly stature, but we step in with hope going, but I'm about to get to unleash eternity off of my lips. I stand with hope. We do not lose heart standing in a sea of immorality, standing in a sea of godlessness, standing in a sea of people that are uninterested in the gospel. We stand and we have hope. We preach with anticipation and expectation that God will do this work. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Pe Preachers, at the end of 19th century in England, arguably one of the greatest preachers who's ever lived. And he trained preachers. He started a preacher's college on Fridays. He'd come and lecture to them. And one of those lectures, he was standing in front, of, uh, in front of a room full of preachers, and he said this, Brothers, so pray and so preach that you would be astonished. You would be amazed. You would be so surprised if there were not conversions. He said, believe your own doctrine. Believe your own Savior. Believe in the Holy Spirit. This is the work that he does, and he uses the gospel to do it. We do not lose heart. 
we stand with hopefulness and anticipation. If we are going to be gospel preachers, we come in humility, but not being down and thinking nothing's going to happen with great anticipation and hope that God is going to do a work here because the gospel is about to be unleashed. We are humble, but we are hopeful. This is why Paul in Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save. He recognizes his own humility even while he recognizes there's power here. We are humble. We are hopeful. Third, we are honest. Did you see it in verse 2? Look back with me. It says this. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's saying, I, I, I refuse to be underhanded, to tamper, to change, to twist the text. But the truth is, and those of you who have been preaching for some time, you know, you know just as well as I do that there is a thousand different invitations to twist, to tamper, to be underhanded, to be deceptive. It's always crouching at the door. Always. A thousand different ways. Uh, I was recently sitting with a, uh, a very prominent pastor in the United States that has built a very large ministry, but he's struggling to figure out why his people aren't growing. He regularly preaches messages that have very little scripture in them, just sprinkled over. And he made the comment in this group. He said, we know surely it's not that they need more of the word of God. Like, surely they don't need more Bible. They've had plenty of that. We're wrestling with what is it that they need. And I was sitting in this meeting just thinking, oh, God, have mercy on us. That when we get to the point where we begin to believe that what we need is the next interesting thing that's going to create excitement and momentum. We need to figure out how we can convince them that the gates of heaven and the blessings are about, are about to be opened and the blessings are about to be poured out. That it's going to be scripture light, but you're going to hear your specific message, just what you need. That all of a sudden when we start to sell this hyper-individualistic, hyper uh, uh you know, laying hold of all of the gifts and the blessings of God being the driver, when that begins to be the case, we start to, we start to reshape the text so that we will be well-received. You see, there's a thousand different ways. It's hobby horses. It's the things that you're particularly interested in in the scriptures. I have a friend that got fascinated uh, for a season with the way that, um, it was actually, it's interesting. He got it, not to pick on you, David, but he was he was kind of a, a gardener, and he got fascinated. He got fascinated with the different imagery of of plants and trees in the scriptures about the the scrub bush, the scrub bush that doesn't grow the way that it ought, and what idolatry will do to to the way that we worship. And I swear, he figured out a way in every sermon to talk about that. Every single one. He was fascinated about this particular issue. Or it may be a, a, you know, a social justice issue, a, a, a minor issue that the gospel does touch and inform, but you are so fascinated with it that you have found out a way to make every passage about that. This is one of the ways that we are, we are beguiled into preaching all these different things. We're not honest. We're understanding. We're trying to reshape things. It may be that uh, there's someone in our church that's very influential and is living in a certain type of sin. And quite frankly, their tithe check is sizable. And we think, you know what? I know I'm preaching through this book, but I'm just going to sidestep that passage that has to deal with sexual immorality. Because I know the brother over here right now, is, I know what he's living in. And the last thing I can do is step on his toes. 
that when we start to feel that creep in our soul, when we are in the study with the word of God open and we're studying it, we're going, but how would they respond? Would they still like me? Would they think I'm impressive if by open statement of the truth, I stood and made the word of God clear? What would they think of me? As soon as we start toying with that reality, we are shying away. We're moving away. We're turning down a different path than what it means to be a gospel-centered preacher. Paul is saying that it starts with humility and hope and honesty. Jeremiah spoke to this honesty piece in Jeremiah 23. He said this in verse 25 and following, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their father forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word fire, declares the Lord. And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. What Paul is saying is this, the reason he's let go of underhanded ways and he is going to make the clear word of God, he's going, I am going to preach fire and hammer. I'm not going to keep preaching this, this thing that's going to be blown away so quickly. Brothers, sisters, we have to make the decision that when it comes time to speak in God's word, we will speak it clearly. We will make it plain to the people. We will exposit the text. I was mentoring a man uh, whose dad was owned vineyards in Bolivia and he was telling me the great struggle of his dad in Bolivia was that uh, all of his competition had figured out a way to cut the wine with a certain amount of water. And he said they, they're making a greater profit by selling something that's deceptive to the people. And his dad was really wrestling with, what do I do? I can't keep up unless I do the same. And as I heard him speaking, I said, ah, that's the invitation. That's the invitation to be a gospel preacher and a society that's awash with things that are, are slight twists on the gospel. People are, are cutting it with water, watering it down and changing it and tampering with it. But they're having such great success. And we look over the fence and go, what great success? Maybe I ought to sprinkle a little bit of that in. Do not believe the lies. Do not move away from the space of the faithful work of continuing to make the text clear. We are called to be humble and hopeful and honest. And finally, as to the identity of the gospel preacher, look at verses 3 through 5 with me. It says this. If, indi if indeed, oh, pardon me. That's chapter 5. That would be a different sermon. Uh, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And just at the first of verse five, it says this, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. He's painting this interesting picture that as the gospel is sown, that there's actually warfare going on around it. And this is not a surprise because Jesus has said it. So when you cast your seed, the birds will come and pluck it right away. And he says, that's the enemy. The enemy is very attuned to your preaching. He wants to blind the minds and the hearts of the listeners. And he says, this will continue to happen. And he's painting this picture of warfare. And then at the end, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. He paints a picture of what our role, what our identity in the midst of the battle is. And he uses the word that is most consistently used of preaching in the New Testament. 
an interesting study in contextualization, actually, that you've got a, a faith that has been historically Hebrew that's been translated into a Greek world, that the gospel has broken forth, and now the New Testament is being written in Greek, whereas the Old Testament was in Hebrew, and they're having to rethink all of these spiritual terms in the Greek language. Well, the New Testament authors are sitting around going, well, what word would we use for preach? How do we capture the identity and the, the, the vocabulary, the actual, the actual action of preaching? And it's a word that shows up in this passage in verse 5, right in the context of the battle. It says, for what we proclaim. It is the word that is most consistently used for preaching. And it's a word in the Greek that is kerux. It means a herald. The final H, as it were, and uh, one thing I've learned since I was 17 is how to alliterate. And so we've got humble, hopeful, honest, heralds. And this word herald, when they decided to select it, to select it for the way that preaching was going to be described, the idea was that it was actually a political office. It was a political office of, of some low standing. It was the messenger of the king. And when the king had a message... He would, he, would make the he would write the message down and he'd ro uh, roll it up in his scroll and he'd put the king's stamp on it. This is the king's edict. And then he would hand it to the equivalent of the mailman. It's not a real important job. He's not of great standing, but all of a sudden he's got the king's edict in hand. And when he comes into town and he stands in the center of town, people, when they see him ride into town, walk into town, they go, well, that's just the mailman. That's just the herald. That's the one who brings the message. But when he stands in the center of town, and he unrolls the king's scroll that has the king's stamp on it. A hush falls in the crowd. <laughs> because whatever he's about to say is going to change our lives. Because it has authority over us. It comes from the king. And what he says is this. We must be heralds. We must stand into the battle. And what we do, to do is we declare. We declare something. And what we declare is whatever it is that the king has issued to be said. And we're going to talk about that in this next movement. I just want us to feel the weight of this reality. Recognizing ourselves as a herald is the way that we can hold the first three H's together. You must recognize that your position is not impressive, but your message certainly is. And when you realize that you are a herald, you can be both humble and hopeful. And when you're humble and hopeful into this place, all you have to do is be honest. Because as long as you're reading from this edict, as long as you're making that plain, it will have power. And as soon as you start making about your opinions and your hobby horses and the things you're interested in, beware because your people will suffer under your preaching. You see, our identity as gospel preachers, we are humble, we are hopeful, we are honest, and we are heralds. Well, what is the message Look at verse 5 with me. What is it that we herald in the midst of this battle? Well, it says this. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Sounds familiar. I think I heard Femi say that earlier. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He gives us in half a verse the core of his content because he says, I don't need more. I could extrapolate on it. And in Paul's writing, he certainly does. But he says, what is it that the herald proclaims? Let me tell you, Jesus Christ is Lord. Which Femi so beautifully spelled out for us this morning, all the implications of what that definition really means. But what he's saying is, this Jesus of Nazareth, crucified for our sins, has been resurrected and is the king of all. That's what he's saying. 
And he's saying, that's my message. Now, why is that such an important message in the heat of battle? Why is that our role in the midst of this conflict that he has just painted this picture of? The enemy is fighting against it. He's blinding hearts and he's going, but what do we do? For what we do is we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Why is that so important? And this is at the heart of gospel preaching. The reason that it is so important. I want you to imagine a, a, a village in, at the outskirts. They know that the nation is at battle and that the front lines are elsewhere. They have been living in fear, not knowing what is going to happen, not knowing what the future holds and not knowing how I'm going to, to live in this place. Am I about to be carried away? Am I about to live under a, a, a cruel master? What is it going to hold? And all of a sudden, the messenger rides to town. The herald comes in with the king's edict. And he comes riding in. He goes, I've got a message from the king. And he unrolls it. And what he says is this. The king has won the victory. And the war is over. That is the message of the preacher. Now, it may be that these people don't didn't see the battle, don't understand what was going on initially, but then all of a sudden as they start to understand the context, they start to realize, you mean we're free? You mean every area of my life? All you had to say was Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king and he's conquered. Now what you're telling me is every area of my life needs to be reworked in light of that. We're not still in battle. I don't have a cruel master. I don't, I'm not wondering how life is going to play, play out under the law of the other master. No, no, no. He is on the throne, and everything flows from that. And so this becomes true in our preaching when we start to realize that, I mean, I'll say it like this. How do your people leave the church after they've heard you preach? How do they leave? This is an important question. Because if people leave out of the church after hearing you preach thinking, I've got a lot of work to do. Like I just, I haven't done enough. And I haven't added up. And I don't know, I don't know how it's going to pan out. I don't know if I've got what it takes. I'm worried. And I'll try better this week. You know, I got encouraged, the music was good, and I heard all the ways that I've been failing, and now I'm going to go out this week, and I'm going to try my best again. Whatever it is that they've just heard, it's not the gospel. Because the gospel herald stands at the center of that space and proclaims, the king has won the victory. You are free. You are saved. If you place your trust in this king and you live in his kingdom, you never have to live in fear and shame and guilt and worry ever again. He's unleashed the bonds. And out of that place, we can talk about how to appropriate that victory. So let's talk about that. We want to talk about sexuality. Let's talk about sexuality. You have been sleeping around, hungering for some sense of, I can be both exposed and embraced at the same time. That's the hunger. That's why we live in sex-crazed cultures. Everybody's wondering, can someone see me for all that I am and still love me? And the unfortunate reality is that we have all of these friends that we are loving and trying to share the gospel with that have all of these partners. And the truth is that they have been physically exposed and they have been physically embraced, but they're still wondering, am I really okay? Because the truth is the hunger for sexuality is a hunger for the gospel. It's a hunger to recognize that Jesus is the only one in all the universe that just hasn't seen you naked, but he's seen your soul stripped bare. And he says, even though everyone else, if they saw what I saw, would draw back in disgust, I lean in and I embrace you. 
You see, now we declare, look at what he's done. He will satisfy the deepest places of your soul. You don't have to live in chains to your sexual immorality ever again. You're free to go. Now I'm looking at what Jesus has done, not my own emotion and will and grit to try to figure this out. Or generosity. The preacher standing up in front of the church and going, you guys just aren't giving. you got to give more money. And all of a sudden we start to feel like, oh, yeah, that's true. The preacher's right. As opposed to saying, look at what the king has done. He has secured the victory. He who had all wealth and everything in his hand, he made himself poor for us. He gave everything away, even dying on a cross, so that all the riches of heaven are yours forever. You don't have to live in fear and worry ever again. You, like Jesus, because the king has secured the victory, you can open your hands. And you can give freely knowing that he has tended to you and he will never leave you or forsake you. That all of a sudden, every area of our lives begins to unfold under the banner of Jesus is Lord. What is our message as a herald? It's that. Eugene Peterson has said, Christ plays in 10,000 places, right? This is a phrase that is really helpful, this recognition that every sermon we preach is a gospel sermon. We're preaching Christ and him crucified. We're preaching Jesus Christ as Lord, but that doesn't mean we don't preach about generosity and sexuality and lying and anger because all of those are gospel issues. And if our people can see and savor Jesus as the glory of God displayed in his face, they will realize they're free. Do not let your people leave weighted down and in chains. The herald proclaims the king has won the victory. Finally, by what power do we proclaim it? By what power do we proclaim it? Look back at verse 6 with me. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's this beautiful reality that at the end of proclaiming this, this message that is declared so beautifully and powerfully proclaimed, that Paul says, and by the way, the God who spoke light into darkness at the beginning, he's quoting Genesis. He's talking about the miracle of creation. And what he's saying is there was darkness and there was chaos. And it was the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis 1. And into that space where there is chaos and darkness, when God speaks, light and life and order emerge. And what he's saying is when you stand and you preach that very same God with that very same power, it doesn't just create, he recreates. He makes us new. He calls us from the grave and says, your life has been shrouded in darkness and struggle and death. But when my word comes, life and power and order, what he's saying is you don't stand alone. You stand by the very power of God because this is the reality. The Holy Spirit breathes on Jesus-centered preaching. The Holy Spirit's main role in the world is to illumine the Son to the glory of the Father. If you want Holy Spirit wind in your sails as a preacher, preach Jesus. Because a sermon without Jesus, as Spurgeon also said, he said it's like a river without water. It's like clouds without rain. He says it's nothing. It's like bread without flour. You're preaching something that the Spirit can't bless. He can't. The Holy Spirit does not blow on our whim and our emotion. He blows and he points at Jesus. And the power of God will show up. A few weeks ago, 
there was a man named Will that walked into our service. And Will is a recovering alcoholic. He's got about 12 years sober and he mentors other men. He has been aware of a higher power for years, but he has disdained the name of Jesus. He had a friend tell him about our church and that we do a lot of work with addiction recovery. And, and so Will, just on a, on a whim on a Sunday morning, he had just left an AA meeting and he's going, you know, I don't know if I'm fully satisfied. I'm, I'm going to go check out this church that actually meets in the high school where my boys go. He was really intrigued by this. And so Will stepped into the service, and he sat in the back. Will's about 51 years old. He's very wealthy, very well-educated. He has everything that the world would say. And quite frankly, if I were preaching a, a gospel of just believe and you'll get it all, he'd go, I already got it. But what he heard, not just from me, but from the whole order of our service that's been built around making the gospel plain. At the end of the service, he came and he said, I need to talk to somebody. And when we sat down and talked with him, we said, Will, what's going on? And he said, I don't know. Something happened to me. I was like, I, you're going to you're gonna have to explain more to me. Well, I don't, I don't get it. He said, no, no, I, I don't know what else to, to tell you. Something happened to me. And I said, well, let's start meeting. And we, we started to read the Gospel of John together. And on week two, as he's reading the Gospel of John, he said, I finally know what happened. I said, John, tell, I mean, pardon me, Will, tell me. And he said, I'm reading this stuff, and what I've realized is I love the name of Jesus. He said, I've spent my whole life going, I'm down for a higher power, but would you just shut up about this Jesus guy? And he said, what happened to me must have been this Holy Spirit that we're reading about, because now I love the name of Jesus, and I want to be baptized. I want the whole world to know it. He stood center court in this gym where we were worshiping a few weeks later, and he told as much to our people. He said, when I heard about Jesus, something happened to me and I will never be the same. And as we baptized him, what we were seeing is the new order emerging. What we were seeing is God speaking into darkness and saying, let there be light. When we preach the gospel, when we preach Jesus is Lord, God's power breathes on that. He is the wind in our sails. Please, please, literally for God's sake, and for your joy, be a gospel-centered preacher. Humble, hopeful, honest heralds of Jesus Christ as Lord by the very power of God. We will get to see eternity break in. Amen.